evening, everyone, and happy holidays. Welcome to Outbeat Now. I'm Greg Moralia. Jeff Basham is off tonight. Outbeat Now is a public affairs program for and about the LGBT community here in the North Bay and beyond. Tonight, we have a very special one-hour edition of our Outbeat Youth segment featuring three very special guests. We're going to begin with welcoming back Marsha Azumi and her transgender son, Aiden. We're here to talk about their new book, Two Spirits, One Heart. It's a perfect story of a mother's unconditional love for her son. And in the second half of the hour, you'll meet a very inspiring young LGBT activist from Virginia Beach, Connor Norton. All of this and some very special holiday music right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, December 23rd, 2012. Efforts to undo the Defense of Marriage Act in Congress received a major boost Friday as Republican Richard Hanna of New York declared his support for legislation to repeal the 1996 law that prohibits the federal government from recognizing the marriages of same-sex couples. The move makes him only the second Republican lawmaker to back the measure. Hanna, a first-term incumbent from upstate New York, announced his co-sponsorship of the Respect for Marriage Act in a statement provided to The Advocate magazine. He said, New York State allows all of its citizens to marry the person they love. He said, under the Tenth Amendment, the federal government has a constitutional responsibility to respect New York's right to set its own laws, and it's my job to see that it does. He continued by saying, it's the right to extend equal protection under federal law to all couples who are legally married without infringing upon religious freedom and beliefs. This legislation does not tell states who they can marry or who must be treated as married, nor does it require any religious institution to violate their own convictions. I respect the deeply held beliefs on both sides of the issue. The simple fact remains that the federal government has a responsibility to ensure all legally married couples are treated equally under federal law, and this bill would achieve that proper standard. And also from New York, AIDS activist Spencer Cox, who helped form an organization to boost treatment research and recently appeared in a documentary about AIDS, has died. Cox, who was 44, died Thursday at Allen Hospital in Manhattan of AIDS-related causes, according to his brother Nick Cox. Journalist and director David France said Spencer Cox can be seen in a documentary released this year called How to Survive a Plague. Cox joined the ACT UP group, known for its demonstrations and sit-ins and aggressive tactics seeking more resources for AIDS treatment and prevention in 1989. He and other ACT UP members formed the treatment action group known as TAG to focus on accelerating treatment research in 1992. France said Cox was fiercely intelligent from the time he was a teenager. He wound up consulting with Nobel Prize winners on novel approaches to attacking viruses, rebuilding immune systems, and designing drug trials. Dr. Anthony Fossey, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, told the New York Times that Cox was always very meticulous about getting good data rather than just screaming for getting something approved. Fossey added, it's a great loss. He was part of a historic group of people. A memorial for Cox will be held who is survived by his brother and mother this coming January in New York. And here locally... The Russian River Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence will spread some sisterly love by serving a hot home-cooked meal to those in need in their community on Christmas Day this Tuesday from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Guerneville Veterans Hall. Toys will be given to children in attendance courtesy of Mama's family who's been collecting toys for needy and at-risk children for 12 years. When the holiday dinner was first organized, it served many of its meals to the West County homeless and to those who were unable to cook for themselves. 
As years have passed, the sisters are seeing more and more families with children coming to the dinner. Because of these tough economic times, they are anticipating a larger crowd than usual, and the need for donations has grown dramatically. They're asking for help from the community to make sure that everyone at the river enjoys a hot meal and a little holiday cheer. The sisters are in need of whole cooked turkeys and or hams that can be reheated on site. Currently, they're short of their goal of at least 35 turkeys. These perishable items can be dropped off at the vet's hall between 8.30 a.m. and noon on Christmas Day. The sisters are also looking for volunteers to help with setup, serving, and cleanup. If you'd like to volunteer, give Sister Prudence a call at 869-9354. And of course, cash donations are always accepted. They can be sent to the Russian River Sisters, P.O. Box 771, Guerneville, 95446. And of course, you can always find out more information at their website at rrsisters.org. And finally, coming this January, the Redwood Rainbows will be offering some square dance lessons starting on January 2nd from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at Wishman Hall, 465 Morris Street in Sebastopol. These classes are open to anyone interested in learning modern square dance, and no experience is necessary. Singles are welcome, and you do not need a partner. The dress code is casual. The cost is $6 per night or $20 a month when you join the club. You can learn more at their website at www.redwoodrainbows.org. Now here's your calendar of events for the coming week. On Tuesday, Christmas Day, the R3 Hotel will present Christmas Day Celebrity Bartenders Marathon at the hotel's festive bar located at 16394th Street in Guerneville. All collected tips will benefit face-to-face, food for thought, the Russian River Sisters, River to Coat Children's Services, and the Russian River Senior Center. Fun starts at noon Christmas Day and lasts until midnight. And on Wednesday, December 26th at 5 p.m., the Spectrum LGBT Center will host its youth group support meeting, 30 North San Pedro Road, Suite 160 in San Rafael. And on Friday, December 28th at 7 p.m., the 28 Men's Sex Attic Group will meet at the Sutter Medical Center of Santa Rosa, located at 3325 Shenate Road in Santa Rosa in Conference Room 1. This group is open to sex addicts or men who believe they may be sex addicts. For Gary Carnivelli, I'm Greg Moralia. Christ is born in Bethlehem.
That was our great friend, singer and songwriter Randy Driscoll from San Diego with some of her Christmas melody. We'll hear more from Randy later in the show. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat Now and a special one-hour Outbeat Youth segment right here on KRCB Radio. Our first guest tonight is Marsha Azumi and her son Aiden, and you met them here on Outbeat Youth a while back after Marsha spoke out publicly against some local community leaders in her hometown of Arcadia, California. Marsha's son Aiden, who's a transgender man, who through the support of his mother and family has become his true self. Marsha has a new book out about their journey together, and it's titled Two Hearts, One Mind. Well, Marsha and Aiden, welcome back to Outbeat Youth. Thank you, Greg. Nice to be back. Well, it's great to have you here, especially around the holiday season. Well, when we had you on the show the first time, it was in response to uh, your speaking out in support of your transgender son, Aiden, over something that happened in Arcadia. Refresh our memories about that. Well, the mayor at the time was um, planning a mayor's community breakfast, and he decided to invite a speaker from Focus on the Family. And... A group of us were not very pleased with that selection because focus on the family is not very um, positive about the LGBT community. And we felt like using funds from the city to bring in someone like that, although he, I'm sure he was a nice man, did not represent, you know, my interest or my son's interest in the city. Sure. And it sounds like you've had you know, really quite a journey Aiden, catch us up with what's happening with you since we last spoke. Okay. Um, let me see. I, I'm not sure where I was working when we last talked, but I'm working now um, for Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, um, just doing research for their research team. And I'm going to school still at Pasadena City College, but this will be my last semester in the spring there, and then I'm transferring to the University of Laverne. Oh, good for you. And, yeah. And what are you studying at uh, school? Um, I'm looking to do a bachelor's in liberal studies and then get my teaching credential. Okay. Very good. And this journey has led you both, Marsha, I think you took the lead on this, to write a book called Two Spirits, One Heart. Tell us about that. Well, yes. Actually, Aiden and I talked in the very beginning when I had this idea to write a book. And I said, do you want to collaborate and help me write it. He was in school and working and said, I just can't do it unless you want to wait like three or four years, <laughs> you know, because it would be a slow process with his schedule. And so I said, really, I wanted to get the book out. So he gave me permission to write it from a mother's point of view. And it is a memoir about our journey from his earliest years up to pretty, pretty much up to the present day. And it just talks about... Um, the different parts of our journey, such as, um, you know, high, the middle school, high school age, a lot of his depression and withdrawal, his transition and his, you know, eventual transformation as a person that was so sad to somebody that can just be himself. Well, one of the really strong themes in the book, you know, is the unconditional love you have for your children. Tell us about how you were able to traverse Aiden's evolution, first coming out as gay and then coming out as as transgender. How did that happen for you as a parent? Well, I think for me it was more difficult when he first came out as a lesbian because I didn't know too much about the community and, you know, every everything that I thought about was negative. 
you know, um, just the way society would uh, treat my child, um, just about the future, safety, just all of those things. So initially, I think I struggled um, with just the whole idea. But after Aiden came out as a lesbian, I felt like, okay, his life is going to turn around, and it didn't. And so I think the next coming out as transgender was easier for me because I felt like we needed to do something different. It's not that I wasn't afraid or have guilt or all that, but I just um, I just didn't have that same level of, I guess, all those feelings when he came out as transgender mm -hmm. as he did when he came out as lesbian. And it really is a process, Greg. You know, um, I spent a lot of time on the Internet trying to get information. I uh, read a book called True Selves by Mildred Brown. I, I uh, started going to PFLAG, which is Parents, Family, and Families and Friends for Lesbians and Gays. And there I found other parents that had similar stories. And so I didn't feel so alone. Um, I didn't feel like I had made so many mistakes that my child turned in to be either gay or uh, transgender. Um, I think you become a little bit more objective, and so it's just easier. It's like easier. You take every step and you think, okay, you know, um, what do I want to accomplish or what am I afraid of? And then you go and find answers. Mm -hmm. So for, for you, was it sort of a structured educational process or did you just sort of go along and, and learn as you went? Um, I think I just went along and learned as I went. Mm -hmm. It feels, it, I think it feels structured, but I think it was pretty organic and it was like somebody, I'd go to a meeting and they talk about something and I didn't quite understand it. So I'd go on the internet and look into it. Or I would say to a person, can you have coffee with me so I can talk with you? So I think, you know, one thing led to another. And pretty soon I was at a point where I felt more comfortable. And so as I did research, and a lot of my information, to be honest, came from Aiden. Because he had been doing so much work and so much research himself. And then he would explain things to me. So then I'd be more comfortable, like testosterone, you know, yes, it's irreversible. These are the things that are reversible, though. So then I'd say, okay, well, I can, I can live with that. And, and just remind us, how old, Aiden, were you when you sort of made that transition from realizing you're not really a lesbian, you're indeed a man? I think it really kind of started probably when I was about 18 and, and 19, but I didn't actually come out and I think really embrace that till I was about 20. Mm -hmm. So it's been about four years. I think the really important part of what we just heard though, is that you had good communication with your mom and, and Marsha, you were able to communicate with Aiden where he was able to, to educate you as well. I mean, so many parents struggle with trying to figure this out on their own when the answers really are right there with their kids, if they would simply talk to them. Right. Right. And there's that it's uncomfortable. You know, it's uncomfortable to, to ask your child for help, you know, as a parent. And it's uncomfortable to ask some of the questions that you need to ask. But I think Aiden and I really, 
there's this phrase called leaning into the discomfort, and I think he and I both had to do that. And sometimes it didn't go as well as other times, and we had to just kind of keep pushing forward. And then I think as a result, then that got a little bit more comfortable. So then we'd have to talk about something else. And really, um, like one of the things I really learned through this journey is how how courageous I can be. And I got that because I would see how courageous Aiden was every day. And so I thought if my son can be that brave, then I can be a little bit uncomfortable and push through it. And the more you do it, the more the better you get. We've had some pretty good conversations, and I think um, that's why we have the relationship we do, is because we were pretty committed to to work together, as well as with my husband and younger brother and Aiden's partner Mary to move things forward. I wish all parents had that out, you know, that outlook to in working through this with their kids. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really am trying to do with the book. Because in the beginning of any of this journey, there's so much negativity and fear, and you can't see how amazing the journey can be. And so I'm trying to work with LGBT youth. I'm trying to work with parents to so they have that same kind of communication. So they don't avoid, especially in the Asian community, they just don't want to talk about it. You know, kids will come out, five years ago, and they'll never speak about it again. And tell us more about some of the other messages that you hope to communicate through the book to readers. Well, I think I I want parents to know that it's okay to reach out for support. I think PFLAG was a a really important uh, support group for me. But I had, you know, I had to reach out for support. I had to take that step and go find them and go to their first meeting. Um, I think we've talked about the communication. But another really critical piece is Aiden and I had to clean up a lot. And cleaning up meant, like, if things weren't going right, one of us had to go and say, I'm sorry. One of us had to go and say, I'm not comfortable. It, it feels like, you know, we're not clean, clean. And so what can we do to make it better? And so I think that was really important for us to keep our, our hearts really open. Well, Aiden, let's get back to you for a second. Talk about your role in, in writing this book. What was that experience like for you? I mean, obviously, you know, my mom already said I didn't. The initial plan was for me to kind of co-write the book with her, and, and it wasn't really an option at the time. Um, so I ended up doing a lot of um just kind of interviews with her and you know and she could ask me questions and things she was thinking about for whatever chapter we were on and um, she could then incorporate my quotes kind of directly into the book and my thoughts into the book um, without me having to kind of take time away from work or school to write it so a lot of what I did was was that and then um, every time she finished a chapter she would give it to me to read and kind of go through and make sure like you know, what she was describing was accurate, like if that was actually what I was feeling or experiencing. So that way it wasn't just like her, her perception as much as it was I could tell her that, you know, it was accurate to, to my experience. So I'm just curious, as you went through and sort of revisited those times and those feelings, did sort of re-talking about it or, or writing it in a chapter help close any loops or any holes in the story? Um. You know, I don't know. I think I, I think I had already prior to the book kind of being written, already made a lot of, like I guess I'd I'd already found a lot of closure with any of the kind of troubling or darker times of, in my past. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I don't know if it, I don't think it, it did anything in that way. You know, it didn't, I don't feel like that helped me kind of finish off anything that I was left over from high school or anything like that. But I think it was, it was definitely interesting to see where I had come from and kind of where I was at now and kind of gave me a point of reference, um, just in terms of like how far I'd, I'd kind of traveled in a way. Sure. Marcia, how about for you? I mean, I think having written a couple of books, you know, when you write, it forces you to sort of process one event at a time. Were there any new revelations for you? Yeah, you know, actually, the first part of the book, the book is uh, is divided into two parts. Part one is Ashley, and part two is Aiden. And part one was pretty tough for me. Mm. I, you know, as I'm writing or... You know, all the times I had to edit and review and reread, just cry because it was just very painful. And, you know, I felt like, oh, you know, I could feel my child's pain and I felt like I, I wasn't there for my child. But, you know, um, as Aiden and I went through those painful times, um, at the end of it, he would say to me, you know, Mama, I'm the person I am today because of everything that happened to me, both the positive and the negative. And that helped a little bit because I think Aiden really is strong. I think he's very compassionate. Um, I think he's much more confident than he was when he was younger. And I could see how that came out of this journey and him looking at those as stepping stones to him being who he is today rather than letting them define him in a negative way and feel bad about himself. So what are some of the really important parts uh, for someone who's going to pick up a copy of this book? What are some of the really important parts you want to be sure that they read? And Aiden, I want to ask you that from your perspective first, you know, what, what do you want parents to get out of this, this story? You know, it's funny. It's like, I think that most parents could probably relate to you know, different emotions that my mom writes about. But I think it's important if they're, if they're not able to communicate as well with their child, um, they could possibly get an insight because I'm obviously, I could be very different from their child, but an insight as to what their child could be feeling or experiencing. And it may change a little bit of, you know, how they're reacting to, you know, to their own experience. If it's, if it's more of a, of a negative kind of reaction to, to someone's coming out. Mm -hmm. Marsha, how about for you? I think it's very similar to what Aiden's talking about it, but in the reverse. I think I am hoping that this book will help LGBT youth understand what their parents are going through. And, um, and I know it is because I had a youth from Kentucky, um, write me an email or he did a blog or something and he said I picked up this book and I realized that my mother may be feeling some of these things and so I need to be patient and I think that's what I want to see happen is they understand sometimes it's really not about them and uh, the parent judging them or you know but it's about the parent going through their own fear um, their own guilt and shame and sadness and so if the LGBT individual can be there to encourage them, parent, to, to just uh, be patient, then maybe the parent could come around given time and support from their child. I really think that 
my journey was as wonderful as it was because Aiden kind of pulled me out of the closet in a sense. He would say, Mama, I'm going to Pride. I'd like you to come with me. Sure. So what feedback have you gotten on the book? How's it been received? Well, from from my standpoint, I think it's been received really well. I've had about six people write reviews on the book on Amazon. And, you know, these are people I know. So, you know, maybe they're a little bit um, more positive because, you know, they're friends of mine as well. Sure. They're people that have read the book and really liked it and specifically um, pointed out areas that have been helpful for them. So what are your plans for promoting it? Are you doing some touring? Yeah, we had about 14 speaking engagements from September to the to mid-November. And um, a lot of colleges. We, were, we spoke at USC, UCLA, Antioch College down here in Los Angeles. And, um, and then we've been speaking to, um, we spoke to a PFLAG. And, you know, wherever people want us, we've been able to so far um, uh, do an event at their chapter or at their location. So it's been really great, and we um, have been accepted to speak in Atlanta at Creating Change, which is the National Gay and Lesbian right. uh, Task Force. That's a huge honor for us. Um, I'm going to be speaking, and I'm hoping Aiden's going to be able to come with me uh, to a conference in Palm Springs for the California Teachers Association. So that's kind of a different, you know, uh, area that we're speaking in the educational area. Yeah, but what an important audience. You know, that's that's really a group that needs to learn a lot so they can be there to support, you know, kids in school. Yes. Absolutely. So, so tell us where people can go to learn more about the book and and buy a copy. Um the book is on is on amazon.com and it's there as a paperback and also it's there um, we just put it on as a Kindle in the last couple of weeks. So you can get it in both forms. Perfect. And the book is called Two Spirits, One Heart. Uh, Marsha and Aiden, thanks so much for spending your night with us, and we hope you both have a wonderful holiday. All right. Thank you so much, Greg. And we'll be back with more right after this music break.
That was Randy Driscoll with more of her Christmas melody. And you can learn more about Randy's music on her website at www.randydriscoll.com. You're listening to Outbeat Now and a one-hour special Outbeat You segment right here on your North Bay Public Media Connection, KRCB-FM Windsor, Santa Rosa. Our next guest is a man I met last October at the annual Bear to Make a Difference event benefiting the Matthew Shepard Foundation held in Denver, Colorado. Connor Norton was honored by the foundation with the Spirit of Matthew Award for his LGBT activism work in his hometown of Virginia Beach and at Old Dominion University where he currently attends college. So, Connor, happy holidays to you, and thank you for joining us tonight on Outbeat Youth. Thanks, of course. Happy holidays to you, too. Well, it's great to have you and be able to spend a little bit more time, you know, hearing your story. Give us a sense for those people maybe who didn't hear the first interview. Tell us about how old you are and where you grew up. Well, I'm 19, and I grew up here in Virginia Beach. And Virginia Beach, give us a sense of what that town, that area is like. It's very, I guess the best way to word it is laid back. It, there's not a whole, whole lot, there's not as much political commotion as you'd imagine. It's very much tourist-oriented, but being tourist-oriented, it's also that kind of fun, because they tend to make sure that it's not very politically focused, that it's not focused on social issues, that it's just a kind of relaxed place where you can sit back and relax and not kind of worry or think too much about you know anything that's a stressor. I think it always affected how I was raised because I never really had to stress or think too much about any of those things. I just had to, you know, sit back and relax and enjoy growing up. So, Well, let's talk about when you were growing up. Um, when did you first discover for yourself that you were gay? I think, and as cliche as it is to say, I think that I always knew. And I think that it's really that situation with everyone. But with me, the reason why I never really could identify was because the terminology and the information was still so missed to me. Like, I'd never, like, I didn't even hear the word gay until I was in middle school. It was my freshman year of high school that I finally put the words together and finally started to admit it to myself and start to say it to myself and realize that how right it sounded and how, even though it was something that was supposed to be quote-unquote wrong, it was something that I was and it was something that it felt better to admit it to myself and then slowly admit it to others than to continue to just go with the status quo or to listen to the elders and, you know, go with what this had been perceived as. So I would imagine the messaging you heard from the adults, though, was that this was wrong, this is not who you can be. Did you get that? It's always it's a weird way that I like to word it because it's not quite as straightforward as some of the issues that there are some of the situations that you'll sometimes see. Um, it's not quite Westboro in that sense. It wasn't, I didn't have adults screaming at me that, you know, you're going to hell, that you're going to be condemned, etc. But it was kind of a more a silent killer kind of thing. It was the fact that I heard so little about it that it spoke volumes to me. You could ask anybody questions about it, questions about homosexuality, questions about being open, but not a single adult would address it or talk about it or even, you know, give it the time of day. And that, to me, spoke many more volumes than to condemn it or to openly talk about it. Because just by being silent about it, it left kids like me in the dark and in the closet for, I mean, years. Right. And to not know what it was and to know that it was something that wasn't supposed to be talked about, it had a bit more of a, a chilling effect to me. It wasn't... It was a collective understanding through my entire 
um, grade school career that this is something that we don't talk about and that if you do talk about it, it's very weird, very awkward, very wrong, and that you would be ostracized or con- not necessarily condemned, but in a silent way condemned from the community for being so willing to talk about it. Right. I know that when I was in um, high school and I was finally coming out, um, it affected my high school career very much because people knew about it by then. They knew the words. They knew the information. And, I mean, a great deal of those people I'd grown up with, so they all had the same teachings as I did. And so I could understand when they would be silent about it. You know, it wasn't any different for me than when the adults were silent about it when I was in elementary school. So did you come out as your, in your freshman year? Mm-hmm. So tell us about that. Freshman yeah, of high was, school um, and growing up in this, literally the South, what was that like? It was, um, it was a really interesting experience. It's, um, I mean, of course, anybody's coming out experience is interesting. Um, my situation was um, when I finally started to put the words together and start to think about it to myself, um, I finally started talking to like, my very close friends and realizing it. And I guess, the, I guess the biggest thing I have to say before I start going into how I started thinking about it was um, when I was in high school, I went to the Governor's School for the Arts, which is a theater magnet program for um, about 200-plus students in the uh, Hampton Roads area that present um, excelling talent or passion for their art, whether it's musical theater, dance theater, etc. And so I was a theater major for the Governor's School. And when I started going to the school, I was still very recluse, very closed, because, at my experience, that was pretty much how you were. And it was in the theater department that I first started to meet actually open gay people. Um, one of them was a junior, I believe, my freshman year. His name was Ian Stern. And he was, he was really sweet. He was very nice. And he kind of inadvertently took me under his wing. We weren't, like, we didn't become best buddies or best pals. But it was through seeing him live his life openly and proudly and starting to see that, you know, people like that could live like that and people would treat them equally and love it and embrace it, that I started to kind of put the words and the thoughts in my mind and was like, is this the life that I can live or is this the life that I would like to live? And so as the few, as the few months of my freshman year went through and as I started to come into myself and work with and work in the theater department and see how open and accepting people were, and really could be, I started to put the words together and started to come out little by little to my friends. I came out at the bus stop, actually, my first day. I um, told two of my best friends that I thought that I was bi, and they said, yeah, well, we figured that. And then about a week later, I told them that I was gay, and they were like, yeah, we didn't buy the whole bi thing. <laughs> and um, so I was just kind of like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I'm gay. And they're like, yeah, we know. So it sounds like coming out at school went pretty well for you. How did it go at home? It was a lot easier than I was afraid that it would be. Um, by the point that I came out, I didn't come out at home until probably my sophomore, junior year of high school. And the biggest reason was because in starting to come out and in starting to figure out more about the LGBT community, you know, you naturally hear a lot of horror stories about children coming out to their parents and, you know, being shunned or you know, kicked out, etc. So I, I didn't have exactly the best thought process in my head of how it was going to go. Well, when I came out to my mom, it was very simple. It was very, I, was, I sat down with her and was talking to her about a guy that I liked in class, and 
you know, rolled over the subject. And once I rolled over it, she just kind of was silent about it. And I was like, Mom, did you hear me? She's like, yeah, I heard you. I was like, so you know that I'm gay? And she was like, oh, yeah, I heard. And I was just like, do you have anything to say about that? And she was like, well, I don't understand it. And, I'm, you know, I'd wish something else for you because I think it's going to be a hard life. But, I mean, I can't change it. So that was the first interaction that I'd had with my mother about my sexuality. And from there, we didn't really talk about it, and it didn't really seem much different. I mean, the only difference was that she knew, and, you know, I could talk about it openly with her. Um, my dad was a much different story. Um, my parents got divorced when I was four, so I didn't really have to come out to him for a long time. And um, my dad is not exactly the closest figure in my life. And um, he has certainly left me without a male role model. And so when I finally decided to come out to him, it was very... It got to the point where my mom was actually the one who encouraged me to do it. She was just like, all right, look, I know it. I've known it for a long time, and I do not want to make the mistake of talking about it at some point when your dad doesn't know, so can you just tell him? Like, yeah, I guess I can. And so I did, and it was very much the same reaction, uh, very blah and non-responsive. The only difference was with the time that my mom had had, she had been able to adjust to it and understand it and understand as I started to get involved and as I started to find a home in the community how important it was to me. And so, yeah, she's not like the out and proud waving the rainbow flag mother, but she still comes out to the pride festivals that I work on. She comes to every show and every event that I work on when she knows that it's going to a good cause. And um, so, I mean, like she understands the importance of it and she understands you know, how much it means to me. My dad has taken all of that understanding and kind of tossed it out the window. He doesn't understand why I do it. He believes that I'm not living to a full potential as a quote-unquote man and is very adamant about making sure that nobody else on his side of the family knows. My grandparents on my mom's side know but my grandparents on my dad's side don't. And any time I go to visit them, he always, like, he goes through my wardrobe, makes sure that I'm not wearing anything too gay, um, makes sure that I'm not wearing anything too, quote-unquote, colorful. Wow. And so, I mean, I endure it, and I deal with it because I love my grandparents, and I'm more than and I'm more than willing and understanding to know that them knowing something like that might make their hearts stop. Because, you, um, so, but I'm curious like, that, I mean, obviously that's what your dad thinks, but what do you think? Um, about my grandparents now? Yeah, I mean, do you think that they would be really bothered I, by that? I don't think that they would be particularly bothered as much as that they would be alarmed. Okay. And, um, my grandparents on, on my dad's side of the family are significantly older. My granddad is 88 and my grandma is 86. Yeah, it's interesting, the the shame that parents take on and you know you think about some of the shame that you feel when did you reconcile who you are before you come out and then when you tell your parents and I've seen parents do this fortunately mine didn't but I have friends who have told their parents and their their parents just take all this guilt and this shame on and they don't want to tell anybody mm-hmm. um, and it's just interesting to me that they take on as much pressure or more pressure and feel more guilt and shame around it than the person who's mm-hmm. gay yeah, and I think a lot of what rooted what rooted into my dad too was a that I would never be 
the quote-unquote man that he wanted me to be. Um, I have to understand about my dad. He was Navy. Um, he's been remarried seven or eight times since my mom. And so he's very, you know, as blunt as I can put it, chauvinistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that experience, you know, seeing what his ideal of living life as a man is, it's something that I could never do. And it's certainly something that I think he expected for me, but when, you know, it obviously was not going to happen, it was kind of a bummer for him. Wow. Well, good for you for standing up for who you are, and and it's got to be tough. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about when you headed off to college. You were already out, of course, by that time. How did you yeah. find the college that you knew would be a safe place for you, or was that even a consideration? Um... No, when I first started doing um, college searching, I never really thought too much about the LGBT community at that point. Um, I had known that I'd found a home in a community where I was, and I knew that no matter what would happen, I would always be able to find um, a community that loved me, particularly if I'd stayed local. And so fortunately, I was looking at Old Dominion University, and that was mainly because I had heard some things about their LGBT community there, Um, some of their... Uh, organization members from ODU out had been at some of the events for Hampton Roads Pride, which is our community LGBT organization. So it put some it put some thoughts into my head, and so it was ODU and VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, that I had looked at because I knew that they both had large local LGBT communities, and that I had had connections to both of them. So no matter what the college situation was like, as long as it was for my education, I wouldn't care what the community was like on campus because I would have a home and a community at large. So I tried out for for VCU and realized I could not afford it. So ODU was the next best bet, and luckily I got in as well. Now, is ODU a and, huge college? How many students go there? Oh, gosh, I think like around 23,000. Okay, well, that's decent size then. Yeah. And is it spread out on several locations, or is it all one giant campus? There are two campuses. The largest one is kind of like we refer to the center of ODU, which is in Norfolk. Um, there's another uh, distance learning campus in Virginia Beach. Okay. Um, but the biggest thing like that me and my mom were adamant about was that I should get the experience of college living on my own or living with a roommate, and so I lived on campus. So you've been involved in a lot of activism work, though. I mean, I don't think you let your heels cool too much when you got there, it sounds like. Tell us about some of the activism work that you've taken on at college with those organizations or others. Um, well, when I got started in um, high school, or not high school, college, um, well, actually, right before college, I had started working with Hampton Roads Pride, which was our local LGBTQ um, community organization. Um, they're responsible for coordinating our Pride festivals as well as to coordinate social events for the LGBTQ community to, pr- to promote a presence and a comfort and safety for the LGBTQ community across Hampton Roads. Um, I started to work with them um, starting my senior year. Um, I was working with Ricardo on Arts for Life, which is a gala that he holds every year on December 1st to fundraise for Access AIDS, which is our local HIV and AIDS research and um, aid organization um, here in Hampton Roads. So working with Access AIDS, Hampton Roads Pride, and Ricardo, to start doing this work and this activism kind of was what kick-started me and made me feel like, okay, I know I can find places where I can find work to do and find things to make me feel useful and important. 
so when I go forward to college, I don't foresee, you know, finding too much of that. Of course, naturally, I'm always inclined to find the more work than I should take on. So as soon as I got to ODU, I was like, all right, so where's our LGBT organization? How can I get involved? And I immediately found it, and it was ODU out. And within the first semester, the first event that I had coordinated was actually the Matthew Shepard Candlelight Vigil. It had been an event that ODU out had done consistently in the past when the tragedy first struck. And as the organization had started to deteriorate, as students and old officers started to graduate, events started to happen less frequently. And so the first event that I could immediately think of that we needed to do to get community attention and to get the organization back up and active was the candlelight vigil. And after I had hosted that event, the acting president at the time had said that she was stressed to, to no end and just didn't want to let the organization die. But now that she had found someone who was willing to take over, that she felt like she could leave. So after the Matthew Shepard candlelight vigil, she resigned, and I became the acting president in my first self, in my first freshman year of college. Um, I do volunteer work at Access Aids, helping um, promote and encourage students and individuals to know their status and to get tested. Um, I volunteered the LGBT Center, helping coordinate their events to reach out to the youth in the high schools that may or may not have had homes or communities that they could have turned to. I've also become the student representative for Harbor, which is the Hampshire's business outreach committee. Um, they work particularly on outreaching and networking businesses in the Hampton Roads community that are friendly and inclusive of LGBTQ issues and policies in their workplace. So they also like to hear from incoming students what their feelings are on finding a comfortable and safe workplace. So I represent the student body there at those chamber meetings. Um, I also am on the advisory board for ODUK Cultural Studies. Now as a student representative to encourage and to educate or find out what students want to see in the Gay Cultural Studies Endowment. As of recently, I just became executive director of Reel It Out, the Hampton Roads Queer Film Festival, which will be premiering in the second week of March. You know, you go, I hear about all this stuff and I go, oh my God, how does he even have a moment of time for school? That's usually what people say, and I always feel I always feel weird when I start listing everything because then I start to feel like I'm getting tired of talking, and I'm like, if I'm getting tired of talking, then they must be getting tired of listening. But you, you know, you've really become, as I'm hearing this and then hearing and thinking about your story in high school, you've really become that person, I would imagine, that you would hope to find when you first came out in high school. You know, that role model and that person that you could look to to say, yeah, I, I can be out and be happy. Yeah, and that's the biggest thing that I like to show people because um, a lot of times people will always say, you know, like, oh, I'm, a, I'm just a high school student. There's nothing that I can really do. Or, you know, I'm a freshman in college. There's not really much that I can do for change. And there's a lot of opportunities there that with the right connections and with the right community partners, you can easily find. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and you have to have the motivation and the energy to do it. I think there's a lot of people out there that have a lot of good ideas and point a lot of fingers at all the things that should be done, but it's quite a different thing to have someone who steps up and says, I'll do that. So this fall, you know, as we've mentioned, you received the Spirit of Matthew Award, which from mm-hmm. everything I've heard, you know, I have no doubt about that you met every bit of the criteria for that award and, and so much more. How did that, how did that award come about for you? It was actually from a representative from Harbor, uh, the Hampton Road Business Outreach. Um, their president, Don King, who is a 
also a member of the Gay Cultural Studies Executive Board. Um, he's worked very closely with me and has been a very good friend. I was mentioning the Bear to Make a Difference Gala because the ODU out is interested in finding different conferences, banquets, events that we can attend to have a visible presence to show those organizations and those communities that there is a strong college community. Uh, Don went in to do a little bit of research, and like myself, he had found the um, information on the Spirit of Matthew Shepard Award. So we had talked about it, and he had asked um, if I'd considered being nominated, and I said, well, you have to be nominated. I can't do it myself. And so he said, well, would you like me to nominate you? And I was like, well, I mean, if you feel like you'd like to, I mean, I'm not going to force you to. I wouldn't ask that of anyone. And he said, okay, well, I would love to write... I would love to write a nomination for you. I'll keep you in the loop about it, and I'll tell you, you know, when I send it out and everything. Then about two, three weeks before the um, Matthew Shepard uh, gala, um, I'd received a call from Greg Greenholch, and he said, hey, um, so were you aware that you were nominated for the uh, Spirit of Matthew Shepard Award? I was like, yeah, I was aware of that. And he was like, oh, well, were you aware that you won? I was like, No. I was not, <laughs> and um, I was actually on my way to my car after my last class, and so I just kind of stopped for a second. I was like, what? Am I hearing you correctly? And um, so it was just a huge shock and a surprise, because for banquets, galas, um, conferences, anything that we've ever gone to for the LGBT community, it's always been paid for, like, either through ODU or out of our own pockets, and so for the first time, you know, somebody was offering to bring me someplace. Whoa. Yeah. Very well, dumbfounding. Why don't we give people a sense of what this event is? It's a formal dinner. Uh, there were 520 people, 520 plus people there that night. And you got a chance to, to speak to the crowd. And we're going to play your acceptance speech now. I was still incredibly nervous about how on earth I would feel when I got up here and nothing prepared me for it. <laughs> um, when I was... um. Little, when I was in elementary school, I was always the bad kid. Uh, elementary school, I was the bad kid. Middle school, I was the weird kid. High school, I was the freak of nature. And you can kind of see where it went from there. Um, I never had anybody, teachers, uh, family, that ever really taught me who I was or to be proud of who I was or even what I was. Um, <clears throat> all I knew was that in preschool at Eastern Shore Chapel, I liked to play the damsel in distress. Um, I was beauty, not the beast. Go figure. And um, I wound up getting kicked out of my preschool for that. So all I was ever taught was that to be what I was, to like what I liked, was wrong. Um, in high school, when I started attending the Governor's School for the Arts, um, my teacher, Ricardo Melendez, he always gave us plays to read for Drama Lit, and he gave me one play he thought I should read particularly. Um, he didn't give, tell me why, he just said, read this play. And um, it was The Laramie Project by Moises Kaufman. Um, it was the first play that I'd ever read, the first remembrance that I could ever recall of hearing about an LGBT youth, particularly that had other voices behind it, voices that said, it's not okay, that his death was something wrong, that all of these people were coming behind him and saying, what are you people thinking? It was the first time that I'd heard the word gay. It was the first time that I'd heard that there were people like me and that there were people out there who liked and appreciated people like me and were there to fight for me. Um, my senior year in high school, I was given the pleasure of directing that production with um, Ricardo Melendez, my 
gay father, as I like to call him. And we played to sold out houses every night. We educated, I can't even count how many people in our community to show them the story of the Laramie Project and the story of Matthew Shepard. And nothing has ever brought me that much pleasure in producing theater or working in theater than working on that production. Um, words can't express um, how I feel being here tonight and accepting this award. Um, everything that I've dedicated to helping the LGBTQ community, um, I've never asked for anything, any recognition, any anybody to say anything about it, only to ask that those people out there listen and hear and know that I'm here along with my brothers and sisters in the family that has raised me, um, that I'm here, I'm queer, get used to it. <laughs> and um, just so that everybody out there can know that um, I didn't come from a great accepting family. My father called me a few hours before I actually flew out here and I told him what I was coming to accept. He said, what was that? He said, Matthew Shepard Foundation's honoring me. He said, oh, well, bye. And um, I can only say that whenever my dad tries to get me down and tries to show me that, I, that he's not supportive or that my family isn't supportive, I can always turn to people like you out in the audience and say that you're my family. I can't help but thank the University Old Dominion for sending me here and um, appreciating everything that I do and all of you for appreciating everything I do. Thank you so, so, so much. Wow. You know, I was listening to that speech again. I remember hearing it live and I remember looking over at my, my dad who was there at the dinner that night as well and, and seeing tears in his eyes. What, what a powerful message. Thank you. Good for you. So tell us about the future. Do you see continuing your work as an LGBT civil rights activist? Absolutely. Um, I'm never much one for politics. Um, I've, I'm politically active and I'm, pol and I'm politically aware, but when it comes to campaigning, when it comes to politics in general, I usually tend to cringe. Um, I can talk politics and I can vote for the right person, at least in my mind, but when it comes to, you, when it comes to anybody asking me political questions, I'm kind of like, eh, I'd rather talk about art and theater. So when it comes to my future, right now I'm a double major in theater and business. My dream is to take that and open my own theater one day, either in the Hampton Roads area or wherever the wind takes me. Open to any types of theater, but with a focus on um, theater for social change. Theater that raises questions and makes debates that get people thinking and get people morally questioning what their thoughts are. The best plays that I've ever worked on have been plays that have either been LGBTQ-themed or have had their audiences walking out thinking and debating and discussing their moral feelings. It's been the best type of theater I've seen, and it's the kind of theater that I want to create. I also want to get a minor in education because I would like to take all of my teachings and my experiences that I've had with Governor's School and with my college educators and be able to bring all of that back to maybe even Governor's School one day. Well, you certainly have made a huge difference in your community. It's, it's very clear, and I can't wait to watch you and follow you in the future to see what difference you continue to make. Thank you. Well, fantastic. Well, very Merry Christmas to you, and a Happy New Year to you and your family. Thanks to you as well. Well, that wraps up this edition of Outbeat Youth and the very last edition of Outbeat Now. But don't worry, we're not going anywhere. Outbeat Now is becoming Outbeat News In-Depth, with a brand new interactive website that'll be your source for LGBT news and information from here in the North Bay and beyond. 
and we'll continue to provide you with the weekly news segments at the start of each Outbeat Radio show, and then an in-depth look at some of the important newsmakers on the fourth Sunday of each month. Outbeat News In Depth will be a news magazine-style show with two to four segments each month, one of which will be the Outbeat Youth segment. But you won't have to wait until the end of each month to get caught up on what's going on in our community. Our brand new program website, OutbeatNews.com, is already up and running with a variety of news feeds, a community calendar, and several ways for you to stay connected with us all month long. You can submit your own events to our community calendar and share your news and information with our listeners. We want OutbeatNews.com to be the place you go to stay informed about what's happening in the LGBT community and for a more in-depth look at those people who are making the news each month. Join us now by registering on our mailing list and by following us on Facebook and Twitter. Learn more on our brand new website at OutbeatNews.com. I'll be back next Sunday night with a very special end-of-the-year Outbeat Extra. We'll be taking a look at some of the most important events making LGBT news in 2012. That's at 8 p.m. next Sunday night right here on KRCB Radio. And from all of us on the KRCB Outbeat Radio team, we wish you a peaceful, fun, and safe holiday. Thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Thank you.